0: And church history documents that the decadent, dead, and lifeless periods in the church is when the Bible had a low priority. And a church can offer all kinds of hyperkinetic programs for your youth and this ministry and that ministry and this counseling group and this support group, but it's all meaningless if the preaching and teaching of God's Word is absent.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, How to Do Church, and Pastor Carl will be addressing the topic of the church as he explains why we do what we do and what a healthy Bible-believing church looks like. Today we will be speaking on our fellowship as a body of believers over the Lord's Word. Please join us in the book of Acts, chapter 20, as we continue.
0: God only has to say something once for it to be true, and tithing is part of God's eternal law. You say, well, how do you know if something is restricted to the Old Testament era or it has application for today? Well, number one, if it's illustrative of some truth that Jesus fulfilled through his life and ministry by his death, burial, and resurrection, then it would have no application for today. So you don't bring animal sacrifices to church. The ceremonial and the cleansing laws were fulfilled at the cross of Christ. Uh, There are some Christians in the early church, as you read through the New Testament, because they were raised Jewish, they continued to eat kosher. But you have a direct command in Mark 7 and Acts 10 where God says that you don't have to keep the kosher laws any longer. So when you come to the subject of tithing, it's not overwritten by the New Testament. It is something that is fully applicable. In fact, ever before Moses codified tithing, you find Abraham giving a tithe. In Genesis 14, he gives to Melchizedek. Now, some commentaries, as you read Hebrews 7, would say that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't think so. But at the least, he was a type of Christ. He's an illustration of Christ, because that's how the writer of the Hebrews compares him. So the father of the faithful, the friend of God... Why did he give 10%? Why not 2%? Why not 20%? Why not 100%? He's the father of the faithful. Where do you get faith? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. How did he know? God had revealed it to him. Could he read Moses? Moses lived centuries later. How did he know? Because God spoke in many portions and in many ways. And so Jacob, his grandson, gives a tithe of all that he has. He was tithing ever before the law was given. Certainly it's later codified by, by Moses, by Malachi, by Nehemiah and others. In fact, Jesus mentions it in the New Testament twice in two Gospels. Let me read to you from Matthew 23. He gives one of his most scathing messages. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these you should have done. That is, you should have tithed without neglecting the others justice and mercy and faithfulness. So, in God's mind, there, there's no competition between tithing and justice and mercy. And faithfulness They're all a part of what God expects us to do. Some people say, well, I believe in grace giving, that the grace of God should motivate me. I believe that too. I believe we should be motivated by grace. But when most people teach what they call grace giving, what they mean by that is that the only motivation is the grace of God, that it is in no way codified. Now, sadly, if two major financial ministries in this country are correct, the average evangelical only gives 3% of his income. And yet their argument is, is that you'll give more if you're motivated by the grace of God. Look, I mean, how do you give on a Sunday morning? I'm waiting for a feeling. Should I give 1% or 20%? Or no, it doesn't work that way. God gave us a starting point. And look, if a Jew under the law who had a limited understanding of the grace of God could give a tenth, then why not those of us who have the full revelation of God in the Messiah, the full explanation of God's grace, be able to give a tenth? If we give less than a tenth, in many ways, I think we're disgraced disgrace to grace. Why? Because God never revises the word downward. He always revised the law upward. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Five different occasions he affirms that. For instance, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust at her has committed adultery in his heart. Jesus was not saying, well, only physical adultery is wrong. Now, that's wrong. But he also says spiritual heart adultery is just as wrong. He didn't say, well, the Old Testament says you shall not rob God. The Old Testament says you shall not steal, but I say steal just a little. No, if anything, he he always revises the law upward. So under grace, God raises the bar. Now, again, I mentioned this, and I covered in depth in my course on finances. You'll hear some pastors say, well, it wasn't 10%, it was 13%, and some will say 23%. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to discourage you from the starting point. Well, if you really want to tithe, then give 23% of your income. And I go through all of those passages contextually, and we discover that it's not additional tithes, it's the same tithe, just redistributed in certain years differently. If anything is a clincher for me, it's what God says in the book of Numbers by Moses, Numbers 18. Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, when you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you, the Levites, shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. It's a universal principle that runs all the way through Scripture that as the leaders go, so go the people. It's especially underscored in the book of Gem- Jeremiah and by the prophet Hosea. And so as the people go, we'll be directly in sync with how the leaders go. That's why... We ask if a man is going to serve as an elder or a deacon, that he tithe. When I came as your pastor, there was just one deacon on the whole deacon board who tithed. How how, how can we ask people to do what we ourselves are not doing? That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. And so, I'm putting this in the context of the whole truth of Scripture. Abraham tithed before the law. He commences the process. Jacob continues it. Malachi commands it. Jesus commends it. We are not to cancel it. We are to do what God says. And so, in light of 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, as he may prosper is qualifying how the tithe is unfolded. Think your way through this. If you make one dollar this week, if your child makes a dollar, you should teach him as a four-year-old to give a dime to the Lord. If you made $100 this week, then you give 10. If you make $500 this week, you give 50. If you make $1,000 this week, you give 100. You see, it's all part of God's blessing and joy that the child who gives a dime and the adult who gives a thousand can lay up the same amount of treasure in heaven It makes everything fair and equal and just in God's economy of giving. In fact, sometimes the poor man, like the poor widow, can give more than a tithe. Remember, she came into the temple, and she gave her two mites, and Jesus says in Luke 23, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all that she had to live on. She didn't give just a tithe, she gave it all. She gave way above a tithe, which is a reminder to me that tithing is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of sensitivity to the Lord. So Paul adds here in 1 Corinthians 16, when I arrive, whenever, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Paul says, I'm not carrying the money back. Every once in a while, someone calls in the Bible line, they say, well, my pastor manages the books, and he doesn't let anybody see the books, and what do you think about our church? And I said, i go to another church. Pastor shouldn't be running the books. There's no right to do that. If he's running the books, what's he, what does he have to hide? That's bad stewardship, and it's a contrary to the example that God set in the New Testament. All right, let's keep going. We're almost done. Our fellowship is with the Lord's people. Our fellowship is in the Lord's work. Our fellowship is on the Lord's day. We read now in chapter 20 and verse 6, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, which is not something they observed. It's just a chronological marker like he does all the way through this book. And he came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. here we are on the map, and um, you see where he's at. He goes from Philippi up there in the top left-hand corner, and he comes in a boat over to the city of Troas. So that's where we are. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, By the way, this is the first time in Acts that Luke notes that the church is meeting on the first day of the week. We just read from 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of the week, every one of you is to set aside a portion of how God has prospered you. Beginning in Acts, you find the church meeting not on Sunday but Saturday. Why? Because it's all Jewish. And they are to take the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Where are you going to find these Jews? In the temple. When Paul, on his missionary journeys, begins to uh, go to various towns, where does he head first? The synagogue. Because that's where the Jews would be. You bring the gospel to the Jew first. But when Paul meets here with the church in Acts 20, they are meeting on the first day of the week. And that doesn't surprise me. Why? Because the Lord of the church was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And every single resurrection appearance that is recorded in terms of a chronological date is on the first day of the week. What day was the church born? On Pentecost, the 50th day from the resurrection, on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, there are some groups that will say, well, we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath the seventh day. And they will say that if you don't meet on the seventh day, then you're either lost because you're not obeying God's commandments or you're unspiritual and that you're not doing what God revealed. And they will further typically argue that it was Constantine and the Roman Catholic Church that established we should meet on Sunday and not Saturday. It is true in 321 AD, Constantine decreed this, and I quote, he said, on the venerable day of the sun, that's Sunday, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. Now, this decree by Constantine predates the early church I mean, excuse me, it predates the uh, dogma when the Roman Catholic Church has begun. When does the Roman Catholic Church begin? There's no mystery to it. It doesn't begin with Peter. It begins in 590 AD, where Gregory, the bishop of Rome, declares himself to be the very first pope. That's the first pope that we have record of, 590 AD. Constantine is not coming up with anything new. The only thing that he did that was new is he said on Sundays, here in my empire, you don't have to work. He was giving people freedom to meet whenever they wanted to on Sunday. He made it a day of rest, so to speak. Remember the first mention of the Sabbath. It's in Genesis 2. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work that he had made. And the next mention of the Sabbath is not until 2,500 years later. And it's recorded by Moses in Exodus chapter 31. Let me read it to you. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Just like circumcision was something done to a male Jew or to a proselyte was a sign of the covenant between God and the Jew, even so, the Sabbath was God's sign between himself and Israel. And so Christians, the body of Christ, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, met on the first day of the week. Now, interestingly, there's going to come a day when we're going to meet on Saturday again. The prophet Ezekiel reveals that during the millennial reign of the Messiah, we will go back to meeting on uh, Saturday. That's a whole other thing. So here they are. They're meeting on the first day of the week, not because some pope decreed it, but because God gave us that pattern. And that's what you see in the revelation as we studied, They met on the first day of the week. There were many lamps in the upper room, verse eight says, where they were gathered together. So they didn't have a church building. Church buildings was a third century phenomenon. Here they are meeting in an upper room in someone's house there in Troas. All right, fourth, our fellowship is around the Lord's supper. Again, in verse 7, we're told, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, the breaking of bread here is a reference to the Lord's table, in deference to a meal, where the same phrase is used sometimes of a normal meal, like in verse 11. Now, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Jude, you discover that Oftentimes, on Sunday, they would have, prior to the Lord's table, a big potluck supper. We called it the love feast. And if you remember, the Corinthians abused it, where some were gluttons and others even got drunk. And so Paul says, no more love feast." But the Lord's table was something that was established by Jesus, and it's binding until he comes to remember him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, again, he writes this on this missionary journey. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He doesn't say once a week. He doesn't say once a month, once a quarter, once a year. But as often as you eat this bread. When I came here as a pastor, we did it once a week. And I told the elders, I said, I just feel like it's just tacked on at the end of the service. It's rushed. We don't really have time for reflection. And... And they agreed, and we went to once a month. Occasionally, we do it twice a month, but generally, we have the Lord's Supper once a month. By the way, we'll have it next Sunday, and if you are able to come physically, bring your mask and come on. And we alternate between Sunday morning and Wednesday night because there are some doctors, some nurses, But largely military, sometimes they have to work on Sundays. That way everyone can participate. But we don't want it so regularly that it's empty and inane. To me, it's too infrequent to do it once a quarter. Or some evangelical churches do it once a year. But I don't want it to be so quick that it's flippant because God says a man is to examine himself. We are to remember the Lord. Fifth and finally, our fellowship is over the Lord's Word. Our fellowship is over the Lord's Word. The preaching of the Bible was evident and central to their gathering. Luke says, verse 7, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. By the way, this is not the biblical basis for a Sunday evening service, as some have reasoned. Because both history and the Bible records that the church was often forced to meet in the evening. Why? Again, 60 million slaves. You didn't have Sunday off. It was a work day. And so, very often, the church gathered Sunday night. And they get together in the evening, and Paul prolongs his message until midnight. Paul's a friend of every pastor who likes to teach and preach the Word of God. You can't grow the church on sermonettes. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. You have to learn God's Word, and a 15 to 20 minute sermon will not cut it. During the early days in this country, the Pilgrims and Puritans averaged sermons that were two hours long. Jonathan Edwards always preached for at least an hour and a half. John Wesley averaged two hours. George Whitefield, they said, preached two hours or longer. John Knox, two hours. Spurgeon always at least an hour and a half. The church in Korea, representing a larger segment of the body of Christ, they meet two hours every Sunday, one hour for prayer and singing, and one hour for preaching. Paul preached a long sermon, and I doubt anyone complained. And church history documents that the decadent dead and lifeless periods in the church is when the Bible had a low priority. And a church can offer all kinds of hyperkinetic programs for your youth and this ministry and that ministry and this counseling group and this support group but it's all meaningless if the preaching and teaching of God's word is absent. Proverbs 29:18 says where there is no vision the people perish. By the way this verse has nothing to do with the way it is being used today. People on occasion, not so much as they used to, but when Rick Warren was in his height, and this was his favorite book, it's the theme book for the purpose-driven life. It's his theme verse. What's your vision, Pastor? Give me your vision statement. Can your people recite it? This verse has nothing to do with that. The Hebrew literally reads, as the marginal note in your NASB indicates, where there is no revelation, where there is no word from God, the people perish. It has nothing to do with some purpose statement. Amos writes, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. One of the main messages that runs through the book of 1 Samuel is a mark of God's grace is when there is a clear word from him, and a mark of God's judgment is when there is no word. And when the church has eclipsed the clear exposition of the word of God, it's not a blessing. It is a curse. You say, well, the word of God can't be rare anymore. We have Bibles everywhere in America. America. I was a part of a church in Boston, Massachusetts as a relatively new Christian. It was the first time I'd heard expository preaching in my life. It was so rich. One of the best Bible teachings I've ever heard in my life to this day. And I remember Pastor Smeltzer leaving and he left because the people didn't have a heart to hear it. And it wasn't that many months later The people were moaning and groaning, oh, if Pastor John were here, oh, the preaching that he gave us from God's word. He was led to move because the people stopped listening. Jesus taught that you can hear a sermon but not have ears to hear it. The writer of the Hebrews said that you can become dull in your hearing. Starvation doesn't simply come sometimes from the absence of exposition. Sometimes it comes from a lack of appetite. Oh, they had a heart to hear Paul's word. He preached until midnight. Paul said to Timothy, if you do anything, preach the word. And so, the assembly, when it gathers, it's not first and primarily evangelistic. Oh, there'll be lost people. Most weeks in most churches, if the people are doing their work, there's an assumption they'll be there in 1 Corinthians 14. But the church service is not designed for lost people. It is designed for the saved. Let me finish. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, and as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Paul went down and fell upon him. You've seen that, haven't you, in our last study? And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. His body was dead, but his spirit had not yet departed. Verse 11, when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, now it's a meal, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then he left. And, he took, and they took the boy away alive and were greatly comforted. Poor Eutychus, I feel sorry for him for all time. He is the one who went to sleep listening to the apostle Paul. He fell and died and interesting, the word that is used here for a, is used of a youth between typically the ages of eight and 14. So he's a young lad. Again, families were gathered in the early church. Maybe it was the oily lamps and the heat, and he's up on the second deck, and he gets faint and he falls down. I don't think it was Paul's preaching that knocked him out. I just think it was probably the heat of the night. By the way, what keeps you awake? People fall asleep all the time in church. And I get it. Some, of, some people come up and say, Pastor, I didn't mean to fall asleep on you, but I'm on this med. No, I, I get that. You, you don't have to explain it to me. And I can appreciate that. But what keeps you awake? See, some people come here tired because preparing for the Lord's Day is not really a priority. I think the Jew is so wise and the way God created the Sabbath from sundown to sundown. And really, we should begin to prepare our hearts on Saturday night. See, you'll do what's important to you. You say, I'm not coming back to that church. He's already been preaching an hour and ten minutes by design. Hmm. But you'll sit and watch a football game for three hours. See, you'll do what's important to you. What's important to you? See, God gave us a picture of this church. They met on the Lord's Day. They, they didn't make it convenient. We'll have a Saturday night service so you can have Sunday all day free. They met on the Lord's Day. Oh, we'll, we'll, we won't even take an offering. We'll put a box outside there in the foyer. They gave to the Lord's work as part of the worship service. Oh, we won't celebrate the Lord's Supper because Sunday is not for the believer. It's for the seeker. So we'll do that at some other time. No, they did it on the first day of the week. And they heard the word of God. Now, you can do all those things and still die and go straight to hell if you're not born from above. But if you are born from above, you have to ask, are you serious these days of apathy and these days of lukewarmness now father i thank you for your word that you've given us that we're not left clueless as to what you want your people to be we pray in your mercy that you would continue to shape us and mold us as a congregation that people would see what is really important to us that the Lord Jesus is more important to us than anyone else in this world. May we never be ashamed. May we never compromise all in the name of winning people. Thank you that by your doing we are in Christ Jesus, that you are bigger than any of us in the proclamation of your word, that someday all the elect will be saved, but thank you that you would commission us to go into the fields this week and to share the good news with those who are lost. May our hearts be ripe and pliable for the Spirit of God to do in us and through us all that pleases Him.
1: I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In conclusion, Pastor Carl reminds us that our fellowship is with the Lord's people in the Lord's work, on the Lord's day, and in the Lord's word. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling search the scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program HTC 020. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women mothering from the heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the search the scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google play store. Also, Check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. Please join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.